China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS. In this week, I'm joined by Kjell Derek Brodsgaard, Professor in the Department of International Economics, Government and Business at the Copenhagen Business School. Today, we'll be discussing his recent co-authored paper, Corporate Governance with Chinese Characteristics, the Party Organization in State-Owned Enterprises, which was recently published in the China Quarterly. Professor Brodsgaard, thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. It's a great pleasure. Thanks, you. You would not know this, but actually this is the second concurrent podcast that is looking at party organizations in the economic space by the time this podcast comes out, we will have done one with Daniel Coase at Harvard, who has a few recent papers looking at party building, party organizations in the financial banking sector, and a paper looking at party organizations in the private sector. So this actually builds quite nicely and, and sequentially. Before we dive into this paper, looking at party organizations and the role of the party in, in SOE corporate governance... Can I ask for a brief intellectual biography? I'm curious, you now have been working on uh, China's political system, China's economy, uh, China's bureaucracy and institutions for, for decades. But I wonder if you can rewind a little bit to how did you get into this field of study and what or who were some of the intellectual influences on you as you were developing an interest in a skill set in researching China? Well, thank you. This is uh, an interesting question. Often people are asking me this question. Well, I was uh, originally trained as a historian, and historians, they usually want to uh, read the sources in the original language. And since I was interested in uh, East Asian history, in particular China, well, then it was only natural that I started to study the Chinese language. So I started studying Chinese, and, and it gradually took over. So my MA thesis was on Chinese foreign policy, and my PhD dissertation was about readjustment and reform in the Chinese economy. So my first uh, university position was actually in the Department of Asian Studies at the University of uh, Copenhagen. And I worked there for about 20 years. But then in 2003, I was appointed professor and head of the Asia Research Center at the Copenhagen Business School, which is a separate university in Copenhagen. It's not part of uh, Copenhagen University. But even though I'm employed now in a business school, I'm not an international business specialist. I more regard myself as a historian or what you perhaps in the U.S. would call a political scientist. And this is reflected in my research. Uh, I have for a number of years uh, focused my research on Chinese, on the Chinese Communist Party. I've done work on how the CCP is organized, uh, how it's managed. I have in particular looked at issues such as Carter management and party reform. And I have worked extensively on key CCP uh, mechanisms, control mechanisms, governing mechanisms, such as uh, nomenclature, the nomenclature system and the Bianjo system and rotation of uh, party elites. And I, I think that my work on party business relations is really part of that overall research interest. The paper we're going to discuss today is situated in this field of inquiry that's trying to understand how 
the Communist Party has been evolving over time. But to me, again, I work at a think tank. I'm not an academic. It's really fitting into this broader paradigm of the Communist Party's really expanding out its reach and engagement with all facets of society. I wonder if we can start, though, at the level of giving an overview on what may seem like something of a, a dry discussion, but is actually very important, which is on corporate governance. Can you give the listeners a kind of 35,000 foot view of what has been the relationship between the Communist Party and corporate governance within SOEs or, or sort of firms more, more broadly and sort of how that has evolved over time? Well, um, corporate governance uh, became an important concept in Chinese enterprise management in the 90s. And uh, this concept is related to the corporatization process that took place during the 90s, where Chinese SOEs were restructured into shareholding and limited liability companies. So inspired by the West, Chinese companies introduced boards of directors and various board committees, such as financial committee, remuneration committee, and so on. And this process was so much inspired uh, by Western corporate governance model that a prominent scholar, actually a prominent American scholar, actually talked about the Chinese playing our game. They were becoming like us. So there were strong isomorphic pressures. Boards were established with a chairman different from the general manager and outside directors were included in the company board in Chinese companies. And this was all legalized in state laws and regulations, the company law, for example, the state assets law. So Corporate governance, uh, the system evolved uh, during the 90s in the early uh, 2000s with this tripartite structure of board of directors, board of supervisors, and, and the management team. But the CCP was not too happy about the, the development, about this process of convergence uh, with the best practices. And from 2008, 2009, and in particular from 2015, where you have a set of very important documents, the CCP started to reassert its, uh, its influence. So the result is a corporate governance system that on surface is similar to the Western model, but in reality is quite different. Can I ask you a, a quick follow-up question and maybe something of a historical question, but in reference to the, to the book Playing Our Game, in, when I was reading your paper, I made a few notes where there were and as you mentioned, seem to be reforms or the creation of systems of corporate governance that looked very much like they were in convergence with, I guess, what we would call Western corporate governance norms. I don't like the phrase Western, but I'll just use it here for shorthand, including in the early 2000s, I think it was 2004, setting up non-executive advisory to boards which very much looks like what we have in corporations here to give some oversight. Was it true up until 2008, 2009, that they were playing our game, but then the party saw the, where the development was going and reacted to that? The reason I ask this is there's a line of thinking that China was never really playing our game and we were just blind to the ways in which the Communist Party was always intent on control. My own personal bias is to thinking it was a little bit more messy than that and that 
if you're looking at the 90s and early 2000s, I think, but please tell me, the dominant logic was of corporatization and setting up structures of corporate governance that were really drawing inspiration from the West and that simply the party made a course correction. You know, Barry Naughton talks a lot about the the emergence of more powerful industrial policy starting around 2006. So it feels like maybe sometime in the mid 2000s there was a, a course correction to the to the left. I don't know what the right direction is that the the party was making. So does that is that fair? Were they playing our game up until the point that they decided they didn't want to anymore? I'm not too sure about that because the the party was always in the shadows. These state regulations, state laws, and so on hardly mentioned the party. You had to look at party documents really to see the role of the party also in corporate governance in China. But the party was always there. But what happened from 2008 to nine, and especially after 2015, the role of the party became more and more pronounced. And we can always uh, discuss that. You know, there are these uh, various concepts like, you know, uh, double entry cross postings, three majors, one big, and so on. And these are all concepts that denote the increased party role from especially 2015. But when you look at uh, at these web pages of prominent uh, Chinese companies, big Chinese companies like, for example, the uh, centrally managed companies, the Zhongyang Chia. Uh, during this period, late 90s, for example, you know, the stylized picture was like an OECD picture of corporate governance, really. So it was portrayed like a stylized, I would say, Anglo-American model. But behind it all, you had the party, and that was not really clear. So you could say that the party advanced more and more coming out of the shadows. I think Per Link has this notion of the party, the CCP hiding in the Sandalia and then coming out, you know, and I, I think that really happened after 2015. You write in the paper that in the broader literature, quote, the role of the party organization is the least understood aspect of corporate governance in China. Can you now bring us into an SOE and talk a bit about what the party's role, and especially if you could now talk about some of the post-2008, post-2015 evolutions, what does the party's role look like in a state-owned enterprise? What does it do? Where does the party situated in corporate governance hierarchy? Well, there are various takes on this, but Let's talk a bit then about the personal personnel appointments. Here, the party plays a, a big role. If you look at the, the centrally managed enterprise, the Zhongyang Chia, then all the top executives are appointed by the party's organization department. You know, the centrally managed companies, the 48 biggest, their executives, their Party uh, secretaries, their board chairman, uh, CEOs are appointed by the central organization department of, of the party. They are on the central nomenclature. They actually have uh, ministerial, vice ministerial administrative rank, some of them ministerial administrative rank. So they have this double function. They are business executives as well as administratively ranked cadres. And, and in China, they're often called, you know, uh, semi-officials, Jun Guanyan, because they have this double function. So the party has a key role in personnel appointments in, in Chinese SOEs. And uh, you see that reflected in, in the rotational system, this thing about 
rotating business executives, so they take up party positions or government positions. So personnel appointment, the, the Chinese Communist Party has a key role, and it actually always had an important role. You know, the party has always had this nomenclature system. So, so it's becoming more and more clear that all these uh, appointments are regulated, managed by, by the party. You can then also look at the, at the party in relation to, to the company boards. And uh, here, the, the party, the CCP, has extended its role in relation to company boards uh, in recent years. Now there's this uh, stipulation, and, and this is really stressed in recent party documents uh, coming from 2015 onwards, that all decision, major decisions must first be discussed in the party organization of the company before being discussed in the board and before being implemented by the management team. This is called Sanjong uh, Yida. Uh, three majors and, and one big. So all major decisions, all major issues, they need to be discussed in the party organization of the company first before being handled and discussed by, by the board. So uh, the party has in this sense moved out of the shadows and, and the political logic is becoming more and more pronounced. So what you have is a, this hybrid system of a market-oriented logic of enterprise reform combined with a party oriented political logic. And this political logic is increasingly taking over. And it is important to note that you see this uh, increased role of the party in party documents. And here you need to consult party documents in order to realize what is going on, because state documents hardly mention the role of the party, maybe a line or two, but not really, doesn't really unfold what is the role of the CCP in enterprise management. Here you have uh, to study uh, party documents. And when you study party documents, you really underline the centrality of the party. No major decisions are taken without uh, the party being involved. Then you can, of course, discuss, you know, what kind of party, because there is this, you know, some companies that have party committee, uh, the big companies that both have a party committee and a party group. So in one of these centrally managed companies, when you look at that carefully, it is the party group that is sort of the decisive CCP presence in the company. It's an interesting point that I think, especially for out, you know, foreign companies that had joint ventures or, or just foreign companies that had party organizations for a long time, their government affairs people were often just looking at what was coming out of the state council to understand, and, and of course, coming out of the MPC. So basically, what, what are we legally mandated to do? And as you just pointed out, a, a lot of how you had to understand the evolving role of a party organization was coming out of a set of documents, which I think not a lot of at least foreign companies were paying much attention to, which was party documents. But that raises an interesting question, which is, and you talk about this in the paper, party regulations are binding on party members but they're not necessarily binding on the host organization, right? Because it's not a law. It's, it's not a statute of the PRC. How should we think about that conceptually? Because it almost feels like something you have to know through intuition. It's not just a matter of rule of law, because of course, a, a party regulation on party building may have a, a significant effect to a company, but, you, but not legally so. I don't know if that is a clear question or if I'm just rambling. 
Well, I'm not a legal expert, in, but but in my mind, party regulations, party decisions are as important as uh, state uh, regulations and, and state laws, actually. Sometimes they overrule them. Even minutes from, from a meeting among party leaders is, is important. So you have to take that into consideration that behind this sort of appearance of state the regulation, state laws and so on, you have the party and the party is regulated by its own set of regulations and they're being revised all the time. And I, I'm pretty sure that non-party members are also managed uh, and, and has to take into consideration these party regulations. For example, if you take the nomenclature system, the nomenclature system also encompasses, also includes non-party members. In theory, it wouldn't because, you know, in theory, only party members would be part of the nomenclature system. But all uh, leading positions in China, even positions being filled by non-party members, are regulated by a nomenclature system. So you also see that, for example, that recently the party took over the central organization department, took over the civil service bureau, which was located in the ministry of human resources and social security in a state ministry. The party took over that bureau. It was transferred to the central organization department, even though many civil servants are actually not party members, but now they are being regulated by the party. So you have the party here as a very, you know, uh, key institution. If you look, for example, at the way Chinese companies are run, are managed, you will then see this double entry cross posting system where you have the manager. Let's look at, you know, the uh, chairman of the board. The chairman of the board will always be the party secretary. It has to be the same person. But the chairman of the board will often also have other functions. If, for example, look at CNPC, the big oil and gas company here, Dai Ho Liang, the chairman of the company, he serves as a party secretary in the company, but he's also a chairman of the listed company. And the general manager of CNPC, Ho Chi Jun, he, he concurrently serves as a party secretary and vice chairman of the board. And when you look at, at, at the board, you have this you know, they have this merging and cross-posting. And this is not only in business. You also see that in politics. In most provinces, the party secretary will also be chairman of the Provincial People's Congress. And the Provincial People's Congress is actually a state institution. It's not a party institution. But you make uh, the party secretary chairman of that Congress, the People's Congress, in order to make sure that the party controls, uh, you know, state le legislation and state appointments. You just mentioned cross-posting. I wonder if you can unpack uh, something you, you discuss in the paper, which I have to admit I had seen referenced before but didn't understand its importance until reading this paper. And this is the idea of bi-directional entry cross-appointment. Cross can you describe what that is and what are how does that operate to extend the reach of the party and companies? Well, it, this is a, a concept that you really see stressed in, in Chinese uh, documents. And it, again, about making sure that the party controls uh, these companies you know, by having a cross posting, by making sure that the party secretary is also 
chairman of the board. And we all know that the party secretary is the most important person in the company. He's the Bao Show. You know, he's more important than the chairman. Peking University's party secretary is more important in terms of ranking than the president. You have, you know, this merging of functions. The party secretary is the same as the chairman of the board. And that chairman of the board will also have other functions that makes it possible to centralize all uh, decisions and decision-making processes. But it's not only uh, in business. You also see it in, uh, in politics. As I mentioned, you know, for the party secretary in most provinces will also be head of the Provincial People's Congress and, and the governor. Uh, will be uh, deputy party secretary in the provincial party committee. So you make sure you have this overlapping of positions uh, all the time in order to, to keep control. This is going on now in, in business, in, in the SOEs. It's a different matter in private companies, but we can always discuss that. Private companies, uh, apparently, uh, it works differently, although we don't know much about that because there hasn't been really any research done. In the paper, you spend some time on a, a case study looking at the China Energy Conservation and Environmental Protection Group, which is a central level SOE, non-listed, but central level uh, SOE holding group. Can you talk a bit about how some of the developments we've been talking here are exemplified within the Energy Conservation and Environmental Protection Group? Well, they also have uh, this... Uh... You know, double entry cross postings uh, in in the company, it's sustained state-owned company, and you also see the party's presence in organizing activities uh, within the companies, organized trade union activities, in organizing cultural activities, social activities, study groups, and 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 so on. So you have the presence of the party at top level, but also all the way down in in the company, and you also have. Um, you know, uh, party president, party committee, and so on in subsidiaries of these uh, state-owned companies. The final portion of our conversation, I, I want to talk about outcomes because, and you discuss this in the paper, I think you do a nice cost-benefit, or at least look at both sides of the ledger analysis of what, from a traditional kind of Western perspective, where this growing power, de jure power, in addition to de facto power of the Communist Party, would hamper the commercial operations of a, a state-owned enterprise. But I, I wonder if you can talk about both sides of the ledger, namely, what do you see as the most significant disadvantages for this new model of corporate governance? But do you see any advantages or any strengths that this gives either the Chinese central government and the party to better um, coordinate and channel the activities of, of, of SOEs or anything else in this hybrid model that you think we might be missing as we come to this with our you know, very traditional Western lens? I think it uh, depends on, on the perspective. I mean, from the perspective of, of the Chinese uh, Communist uh, Party, it really is uh, important to have control of these uh, business executives. And they move them around, you know, business executives becoming vice governors or governors or party secretaries. And there are many examples of this. For example, Yuan Jiajun, who was just appointed uh, Chongqing party secretary. And before that, he was a party secretary in, uh, in Zhejiang, a rising star. 
He's now a member of the Politburo and will probably, I suspect, he'll enter the Standing Committee in 2027. His background is in aerospace. He was a senior vice president in China Aerospace Science and Technology Corporation, one of the most clever people in that corporation. He designed the Beidou system, GPS system. He ran uh, the manned space program and was high profile the vice president in China Science and Technology Corporation. Then they moved him rotated him to Ningxia to become vice chairman. From the party's perspective, it makes sense because uh, people like him, they are part of this iron triangle and, and, and they are a pool of coming leaders, so they want to recruit them. But from a business perspective, it doesn't make sense. It was a loss for China Aerospace Science and Technology. It doesn't make sense from a business perspective, but from a party perspective, it, it makes sense. And you have many examples like that. There are several of these newly appointed uh, members of the Politburo. Ma Singroy, the party secretary in, uh, in Xinjiang, he also has a background in aerospace. Jiang Guoqing, the party secretary in Liaoning, at least three of them. In the wider central committee, you have at least 24 people who have a background in aerospace in leading positions. Most prominent, Jiang Qingwei, uh, the party secretary in Hunan, who I thought would have become member of the Politburo, but he didn't. But he is also one of these uh, prominent uh, people. So you have increasingly the, the party using this pool of very promising and able leaders and transferring them into government and, uh, and, and party position. So from the perspective of the party, the perspective of power and control and so on, it makes sense. But from a business perspective, it doesn't make sense. And when they are... Uh, running a company like China Aerospace Science and Technology or an oil company, how seriously, uh, how much are they thinking of the benefit and the development of, of, of the company rather than, you know, their future career possibilities? So there's the trade-off, you know, and I, I think we need to look at that also in terms of research, you know, what does that mean? for Chinese uh, companies and, and, and Chinese businesses, and actually the economic development of China. Does it, does it really, you know, hamper the economic development of, of, of China? Uh, and that, that is a, an open question. You know, when you look at it, it is clear that China has had rapid economic development, no doubt about that. The, you know, living standards have improved and, and so on. But yet there are also, you know, uh, studies that seem to prove that uh, private uh, companies, uh, they are more efficient, uh, higher profit rates and so on. And then Chinese uh, party leaders, they will say, well, they don't carry this policy burden that the SOEs carry. But they I, I think the majority of scholars uh, would, would agree that the private uh, companies are, are more efficient, but they are not part of the uh, Iron Triangle. They are not part of this, this, you know, the party structure. They're not part of, of the power system. Business leaders in, in private companies, uh, they are often party members like the head of uh, Tencent, the head of Alibaba and so on, but they're not part of the nomenclature. The party cannot rotate them. They cannot uh, rotate the head of Tencent into becoming head of Alibaba. But if it, if it was an SOE, they could do it because then they would be part of the nomenclature. So there are trade-offs and, and, and it's, I think, very much dependent on, on your perspective on this. At a macro level, do you see China's political economy as having now entered into a new phase of development? I mean, it's hard to know 
when you've shifted from one paradigm to another, it's not always clear where the demarcation is, but certainly many feel that the aggregation of all of these changes to the political, regulatory, corporate governance systems are sufficient enough that we're in a really new paradigm for party-state relations, party-state market relations, Many saying the you know the the reform and opening era you know died under Xi Jinping. Do you think this is a new paradigm? I, I think it's very difficult for the party to um, accept fundamental SOE reform because if you carry through a fundamental SOE reform, then you will break this iron triangle of party-state government relations. And if you break that iron triangle. If you break this possibility of rotating the elite party government business elite, if you break that, I think you break the system. I think it's at the very heart of the system. The party really needs these people, these very able um, SOE leaders. They're not all able, but many of them are actually. They need them. And especially now where you have problems with the private sector, you cannot really rely on the private sector, apparently. The Common Prosperity Program has put a question mark on integration of the big tech companies. So I think what we see is that there really is a limit to reform, you know, because it's all a question of power. It's a question of preserving the regime. And when you have that, you know, issue, then the party has only one choice. And that's that's to centralize, keep the power. Final question, and this is outside of the paper. So feel free to say you, you don't have an answer, but I just did a I talked to a number of scholars over the past year or so across a number of different domains who feel increasingly uneasy about the long-term trajectory that China is on, as well as just the basic stability and cohesiveness of the regime. Many argue it's just making more mistakes that Xi Jinping has elevated the party to such an extent that it's now starting to have negative impacts on lots of different areas that were critical to making the party state machine run effectively. Do you have any gut assessment on where China is now, but where it's heading in the near future? Does this trajectory feel sustainable to you? Or do you see some real, you know, some significant challenges now emerging because of this political economy model that Xi Jinping has put forward? Well, I I don't think that there's total in agreement in China about the current line. I mean, these are not the signals you get when you talk to Chinese colleagues. I think especially this, you know, leaving Deng Xiaoping's uh, notions of separation of party and government, separation of government and business. Well, they are now separating government and business. You know, the, the government is actually, the state is retreating from the economy. You have all these new new forms, you know, state management companies and industrial guidance funds and so on. You see, uh, you know, the, the state actually retreating, but the party is then filling the void. The party is advancing, you know. So it, it's not a question of uh, releasing control, actually. It's a question of uh, centralizing and there, I think that these concepts, uh, your concept of CCP Inc. is it's really very good. And also these other concepts like uh, party-led state capitalism, you know, I would put more emphasis on party, more, you know, than the state, actually. The party is consuming, is the state, uh, the state, state functions are migrating 
uh, to the party, not just, you know, uh, the civil service bureau. There are also other examples. And I, I think that there is a limit to how far this can go. And I think there's also, uh, you know, arguments about that in China. And I think that this centralizing project of Xi Jinping, I'm not sure it will succeed. And as long as uh, Xi Jinping, he can point to sort of external, you know, forces threatening China, which he is. When you read the document, he speaks to the party congress. It's all about security, internal security, internal threats, uh, and and also external uh, threats, you know, and and that is his sort of argument for centralized uh, power. But I don't think that can continue to be the main argument. Uh, China is... uh, becoming more and more a sophisticated uh, society. And it will be a tall order, uh, you know, to continue that process towards uh, centralization under Xi Jinping. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, sobering, sobering thoughts. And hate to conclude it on a somewhat pessimistic thought. But again, the paper is Corporate Governance with Chinese Characteristics, Party Organization in State-Owned Enterprises, which is from an issue of the China Quarterly last year. I think for anyone who's thinking about topics about the evolution of China's economy, market party relations, that this is a really uh, important and interesting paper for, for understanding how much has changed in the realm of the party's integration and oversight of, uh, of state-owned enterprises. So, uh, Professor Brodsky, I want to thank you very much, first of all, for your long body of work, which has done a lot to shape my own thinking. And, and of course, any errors in my analysis remain my own, and I, I can't blame you, even though I've learned a lot from your work. And, and thank you very much for, for your time today and for a really, really interesting discussion. And thank you. I have also learned a lot from your work, I must admit. A really big honor to, to be on your podcast. Thank you for inviting me. It was a great pleasure. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog.